All right, um, if you have your Bibles this morning, I pray that you do. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 24 through 26. I just had Chris read chapter 26 to you just because um, it is going to be really the, the end part of it that I'm going to put a little focus on this morning. But um, he's already read that to us, so I'm not going to take any time to read through it again. We'll walk through it as we go. If you don't have a, um, an outline this morning, we have some in the front up here. If you want to be like Ben, you can walk up in front of everybody and get one. Um, if you don't, uh, we also put them on Facebook as well, so you can pull them up there and uh, be able to go through it with us. I didn't get one to you last week. Last week we had the, um, the youth hunt, and so my, my schedule was just stretched thin. I didn't have time to put it together, so... but. This week I'm back on track, and so I hope that you'll be able to use it and get more out of the lesson as a result of it. Uh, before we go any further, would you mind if I pray again, please? Father, we just come to you this morning, and God, we just want to say thank you. Lord, thank you for how blessed we are. And Lord, I know that we, um, Lord, we're spoiled. <laughs> but God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, God, that you've been so good to us in this great nation that you give us to, to live in. And Father, I thank you so much for every one of these veterans today, the ones that are still actively serving. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for, for hearts that are willing to sacrifice their lives for the good of others. And Father, I just pray, God, that you would just bless them today, this coming week, these next few days. Father, I just pray, God, that, um, Lord, everywhere they go, that, Father, someone shows them appreciation for the sacrifice that they've been willing to make. Father, I pray this morning that you would be with me. Father, um, Lord, you know I feel so unworthy. Lord, I know that except for you, Lord, I am. I am unworthy. And Father, I just ask you this morning that you would help me. Father, I pray, God, that you would give me, uh, Lord, the knowledge that I need to be able to walk through these scriptures and really get out of it what you want us to get out of it. Father, I pray this morning that we would hear you speak. Father, I don't want anyone to leave here this morning thinking that I did a good job or that I am anybody or that I can do anything, Father. Lord, I am nothing without you. And God, I ask you this morning that you would prove that. Father, I pray, God, that when we leave, we could hear that we could be able to say, Lord, thus said the Lord. That's the bottom line, Father. This is what you have to say and this is what you want us to hear. And Father, I pray, God, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would be changed, Lord, convicted, whatever the case may be, Father, I pray, God, that you would accomplish your purpose in your word this morning. And Father, I ask you to do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm kind of backtracking a little bit here. Um, last week I was in, and the last couple weeks I've been in the 40s chapters of Isaiah. And I was moving on forward this week and was going to chapter 42. And whenever I got to chapter 42, I saw that it was about the servant of the Lord. They're right down there, Ms. Mark. I saw that it was about the servant of the Lord. And ultimately, the book of Isaiah has four what we call servant songs in them. And I didn't want to move into the servant songs because as I was studying it and as I was getting ready, I saw that they would be very fitting for our season of Advent as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. And so I decided that since I moved through these chapters so quickly that I could just back up, grab some things out of there, and then wait. Advent starts on the last Sunday in um, November. And so we will start the last Sunday in November. I have 
surgery scheduled this week for my other foot, so Brother Chris Michelle is going to preach for us next week. So y'all please come and, um, and support him and hear what the Lord has to say through him. But um, then the next week I'll come back, preach one more lesson from these chapters, and then the last Sunday in November we'll start Advent through the servant songs. And so that's my explanation for why I'm kind of turning around and going backwards so that you understand what I'm doing here. But um, today I want to look at Isaiah chapter 24 through 26, and I want to look again at the lessons of God's judgment on the nations. And so what is it that we learn from God's judgment on the nations? Because you remember in Isaiah chapter 13 through chapter 23, we look at God focusing Isaiah's attention toward the judgment on the surrounding nations of Jerusalem. And so he looks at all of the people, north, south, east, and west, all around Jerusalem, and he focuses on the judgment that is coming to each one of those nations. Well then, when we get to Isaiah chapter 24, he moves that judgment out to the entire earth. And then he really compares this judgment on the earth to the judgment of a city. And so he really looks at the, the world economic system and he, he considers the world a, a single city, if you will. But then by the time we move to um, Isaiah chapter 26, we start contrasting the city of the world to the city of God. And so there are many people that have studied through this, many commentators who call these, this section of the Bible the tale of two cities. And we know that's the title of an old Charles Dickens book, I believe is who wrote that. But basically what I want to look at today is that the Bible also tells a tale of two cities. And so we want to be able to see what it is that we learn from the judgment of the world about these two different cities. And so just to show you what I'm talking about, in chapter 24, verse 10, look at that very quickly. You'll see that as he's talking about, um, um, actually start in verse, we're going to look at just verse 1, then we'll go to verse 10. So 24, verse 1 first. He says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth, and He will make it desolate. And so here, he, again, he extends it to the entire earth, correct? The entire world is under judgment here. The previous chapters have been about particular cities of the surrounding nations. Now he moves it to the whole earth. But then in 24 verse 10, look at what he does. He calls this the wasted city. So again, he looks at the whole earth as a city, and he's going to describe the way this city looks as he... Uh, brings judgment on it, all right? And then if you were to look at chapter 25, verse 2, notice what he says again. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. It was a city that the world thought was a fortified city. We thought we had a good thing going here, right? And it says here, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And so this is what we're looking at at the judgment of God, again, compared to a city. But then look at chapter 26, verse 1. Chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. All right, so now we're back in Jerusalem again, right? And this is the song they sing. We have a what? A strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And so we're starting to look at 
the coming city that God is going to build, the new Jerusalem that He is going to bring all of His people into. And so what we have in between here is a tale of two cities. In chapter 24 and 25, we really focus on much of the city of the world and what it was like and what's going to happen to it. And then chapters 25 also and then on into 26, we get to see the city of God, the strong city. And so basically as we're looking through here, we want to ask the question, what is it that I can learn from this tale of two cities about God's judgment? So let's pick out some of the things we learn. First off, let's look at the earthly city in chapter 24, verse 1. So in 24, verse 1, notice it says again, Behold, and that word behold means to, to look carefully at, to really pay attention to what you see here. And so behold, notice what he says about the city of the world. The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. Literally, this city is going to be a place that he depopulates and he twists it in such a way, notice what it says next, he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And so the first thing that we learn about this worldly city, this earthly city that we live in, is that it is a hopeless investment. If you are investing, I mean, I understand we have to live in this world, right? We have to eat, we have to drink, we, we need to provide shelter and things for our kids and our families and, and we, we have to be able to go to work and do those things. But the truth of the matter is, if you are spending your time laying up treasures in this world, if your time and your dedication and your commitment in this world goes to you building the kingdom of this world, I want to tell you something, it's a hopeless investment. He is going to empty it. You know what it means when he says empty it? He's going to depopulate it. There are going to be very few people left. And as a matter of fact, the only ones that are left that will enter into the millennial kingdom with, with God are going to be the ones that survive great tribulation and they're going to survive him twisting the fabric of this earth. The, uh, and we'll, you see a glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14. Notice what the Apostle John said in his apocalyptic vision that Christ gave him. But it says, the sky vanished like a scroll. You ever seen um, a paper that has been rolled up? You go to the courthouse maybe and they keep all these uh, papers that are rolled up, them old ones, and you unroll that thing. What happens if you let go of that roll? Just rolls right back up, right? And this is the way that John describes what the sky is going to, what's going to happen with the sky in the last days. He said, the sky vanished like a scroll that was rolled up. And as it did that, look what happened. Every mountain and every island was removed from its place. He literally took this thing and he twisted it so that there is nothing the same as it was. Ultimately, he empties it, he destroys it, it comes to nothing. And so he is going to empty this city, he is going to make it desolate. Is that a city that you want to be living in when that happens? Is that a city that you want to be what you call your home? No. 
And so again, this is what he's trying to teach us. The lesson that we learn is that if we are investing, and this is the same thing that Jesus said when he told us, do not lay up your treasures here on earth where moth, destroy, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up treasures in heaven where nothing will happen to that treasure that you lay up there. And so ultimately, if you're going to invest in a city, this earthly city is not the city that you want to invest in. You know, those of you, uh, some of you got 401ks right now. How are your 401ks doing right now? You ain't got to answer that. The economy is just going down. And you look at that right now and you think, man, right now that's not a real good investment, is it? All right, now we're hoping it'll turn around, but ultimately one day you don't want to look and see that you have invested everything about eternity, not just this life. You have invested your entire eternity into this city, and yet the Lord is going to empty it. He's going to twist it so that there is nothing left of it. So it's a terrible investment to make. That's number one. The next thing comes from verse 2 and 3. Notice what he says. And it shall be... So this, what he's talking about is not completely happened yet. Notice he has said in verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty. In other words, that's future tense, right? And then in verse 2 he says, And it shall be. So future tense, alright? And then look what he says next. It shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. What's he trying to say here? He's trying to say that God is no respecter of person. When this comes, when this judgment hits this city of the world, there is not going to be a social status that God respects and says, okay, I'm going to wipe the poor out but I'm going to leave the rich because they got something to offer me. Does God care about your money? Does God care about your title? Does God give you respect because you're the supervisor at your job? No. He don't care if you're a banker or you're a farmer. He don't care if you're the pastor or if you're the sinner. The fact of the matter is God is no respecter of person. And so what we learn in that is that no one is exempt from this judgment that is coming. The only thing that God is a respecter of is faith. That's the only thing that God has ever had any respect toward. He does not care about your social status. He does not care who you were or who you are. He cares about the faith that you have or you don't have. And that is all he cares about. Look again at verse 3 in chapter 24. And notice what he says here. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. It don't matter if you're rich. It don't matter if you're poor. It don't matter if you're the supervisor or you're the, I hope I'm not saying a bad word here, but the peon. Is that a bad word? Okay, I, I was just trying to make sure I wasn't being disrespectful here. But you know what I'm saying. It don't matter where you sit in this category of people here, you are going to experience this judgment unless you have put your faith and your trust 
in him. And we will see that more here in just a few minutes. But now, let's go on to verse, um, verse 4. And I want you to see what we see next. Next, we see that it has already begun. Notice the tense changes. Now, the first three verses were all about will be, shall be. All of this destruction is coming. But we see a glimpse of it right now. Notice what he says in verse 4. The earth, what? Mourns. Not the earth shall mourn. Not the earth will mourn. But the earth does mourn right now. Right now, the judgment of God is already being revealed. The earth mourns and it withers. You ever notice that this old world that we're living in is withering away? It's going away. Every day, our creation becomes a little bit more fragile, a little bit closer to the end. Every day, our bodies that we live in become a little more fragile, a little more closer to the end. And so this is what we see, is that the, the wrath of God is actually revealed now. And I want you to notice that when we study Isaiah, we see it revealed now. We're going to see it back here in Jerusalem. We saw it in Israel. We saw it in the surrounding nations. We saw it when it hit Assyria. We saw it when it hit Babylon. We saw it when... And so little by little we see the wrath of God being revealed right now, but there is coming a day when the fullness of this earth, the city of man, is going to be judged and completely destroyed. Are y'all with me? Alright, so now look with me if you would at um, the, the rest of that verse. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth Language Here again, it don't matter if you're rich. Are the rich exempt from suffering? You better believe they're not. Are the rich exempt from um, having things that they need and that they want that they can't get? You better believe they're not exempt from it. They, there is none of us that are exempt from the withering of the world. Are the rich exempt from their bodies growing old and decaying away? No matter how much money you have, you can't stop that process. And so here he just says very plainly, the world languishes, the world withers, the highest people of the earth languish. And then in verse 5, he says, the earth lies defiled. And so look if you would, because when we translate this word defiled, does anybody have a version in here that says the, the earth lies polluted? So some of your versions may say polluted, but ultimately this is the same Hebrew word that we find in Numbers chapter 35 verse 33. And look at what it says about the way it's polluted or the way it's defiled. He says, you shall not pollute, same word here that we translate defiled. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So what is it in this context that pollutes or defiles the earth? Blood. Murdering one another. Killing our brothers and our sisters. Killing our unborn children. Let me show you a scripture for that. Psalm 106 verse 38. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was what? Polluted. 
with blood. So we see why the judgment of God is coming. Go back with me to Isaiah 24 and look at verse 5 again. Why is the judgment of God here? Well, one reason in verse 5 is because the earth or the land lies polluted, defiled. It's filled with the blood of wars and the blood of, of our brothers and sisters and it is filled with the blood of our unborn children. You don't think that applies? You better believe it applies. You remember what God told uh, Jeremiah? He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That is a life that God knows and you better believe that the blood of that life just like um, Cain's blood or Abel's blood I'm sorry just like Abel's blood cried out to God for justice from the ground you better believe that our ground is polluted with the blood of the unborn that is crying out from the ground for justice for God to take vengeance on this sin and on this earth and so we see in verse 5 again of Isaiah 24, the earth lies polluted. And this is why God's wrath was beginning in Jerusalem. Because they were the ones, just like all their surrounding nations, that were killing their children. They were the ones that were killing their brothers, just like Cain killed Abel. They were the ones that were polluting this earth with the blood of men and women. And then notice what he says next. In verse 5, for they have transgressed the laws. This word transgress means to, to pass over them. In other words, they didn't care what the law of God said. They just decided that they would follow the law of their heart. I don't care what the law of God says. I'm going to pass over what the law of God says. And then notice what he says next, the reason why the judgment is coming. They have violated the statutes. And this also can be translated that they have changed the statutes. In other words, we are a people who, even though we learn the law of God, we take the law of God and we change it to fit our, to justify our sin. This is the same thing they were doing back then. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. Uh, whenever the Pharisees had... Um, uh, whenever the Pharisees in their day interpreted the law about the Sabbath, they said, well, okay, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath unless you carry something and it can't be carried above this height, I think it was. And, and then they said, and if you move something, you can move it around in your house, but you can't move it from house to house. And so ultimately, we change the law of God in order to suit our sin, in order to justify us to be able to do whatever we want to do, right? Is that any different than what we're seeing in our world today? We see that we want to change the law of murder to say, well, this is not really a life. It's just a, a blob of tissue. And so we change the law to be able to say that this is what we are going to change this law to make sure that people understand that this is not really a sin that we're doing. There's nothing really wrong with this. Or they look at the law and what God says very clearly about sexual immorality. I'm not just talking about homosexuality. I'm talking about sexual immorality. We'll start with homosexuality. But the Bible is very clear that 
A man is not to be with another man the way that he is with the woman. A woman is not supposed to be with another woman the way that she is with the man. A man is not supposed to wear women's clothes. Women are not supposed to wear man's clothes. In other words, there are supposed to be a distinction between the two. All right? And yet, we try to change the law today to say there is no distinction between the two. We try to change the law today to say that love is love and a person ought to be able to do whatever they want to do. And it's not just in the world, it's in the church. The church says we will have a homosexual as a pastor. We will have a homosexual as a Sunday school teacher. Now let me move on down the one that maybe hits a little closer to home for us. We change the rules about sexual immorality and the way that it is supposed to be in a marriage. We say, well, it's not really that big a deal that our children are sleeping together before marriage. And in our culture, are they right? In our culture, they're absolutely right. Matter of fact, I can even sympathize with it in this culture. Let me explain something to you. Do you know back in biblical days that it was very common for a, a, a man or maybe even a woman of 12, maybe even 13 years old to already be getting ready to be betrothed and getting ready for marriage, getting ready to bear children. And yet our culture today looks at these, this age group with those same desires and we look at them and say, don't you have a serious relationship until you've graduated college, until you've got your career started. You are 20-something years old. Are y'all with me here? And you looking at, you know, I used to, I can't go there. I can't, I can't tell that. I can't do it. I can't do it. Let me get away from that. So now I don't know where to go. Here's the point. Y'all know our desires, right? And you're asking all of us to withhold and to restrain this when they're almost, they're almost middle-aged. So I can sympathize with teenagers today. I can. I'm not sitting here telling you that it's easy. I'm sorry, guys, that our culture has turned this into what it is today. I'm sorry. But does it change God's standard? It doesn't. And so what we have to understand is that just because our culture changes, even if we can sympathize. You want to know something? I can sympathize with a woman that wants to have an abortion for certain reasons. I can I can't imagine if my daughter was raped as she comes up pregnant. But does my sympathy change God's standard? That's my point. Is that sometimes God calls us to suffer 
and to sacrifice to stay true. We have to, we have to abstain from our fleshly desires and we have to stay true to His Word and follow Him. The problem with many people today is that we want to change the laws of God. We want to change the statutes of God so that it more uh, agrees with our lifestyles and what our culture accepts. And I'm telling you, just because our standard changes does not mean that God's standard has changed. That's so important for us to understand. And so this is another reason why the judgment of God has come is because we're transgressing the laws, passing over them, we're changing the statues and we're making them what we want them to be and then ultimately we have broken the everlasting covenant. And without spending a lot of time on that, we get a glimpse of that in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through 25. And notice what he says. For the wrath of God is what? It's revealed. What does revealed mean? means you can see it now, right? And so it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, and here's what they're doing, they're suppressing the truth, okay? Now here's what truth you're suppressing. This is the everlasting covenant, alright? For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. So there is not a living creature that has not seen what can be known about God. This is an everlasting covenant from the beginning of creation all the way to the end. Here's what can be seen of Him. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly... What does it mean when something is clear? You can see it very plainly. It says that you can see these things, they are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, from the beginning to the end. And you see it in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So here's the thing. We see God. We look out in this creation. There is no way you can stand before the ocean, the Grand Canyon, the mountains. There's no way you can hold your child or your grandchild in your hands. There's no way you can look at creation and go, there's no God. No, you look in the eyes of your child and you tell me there's no God. And he says here, for although they knew God, they knew Him, they did not honor Him as God or gave thanks, but instead they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so they thought this was wisdom, alright? They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. In other words, for created things. They said we would rather have the creation than the Creator. Therefore, here's what God did. Because they broke the everlasting covenant, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He said, you don't want me? Okay. Go ahead and have what you want. Let me show you what that looks like. And He says, and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and then finally, look at this, because they exchanged the truth about God. And what was the truth? He is eternally powerful. He is divine. He is in a league of His own and deserves worship and deserves thanks and deserves praise for everything that we have. 
And yet we suppressed that truth. And we robbed him of that. Are y'all following me? We robbed him of that. And then look what he said. And we exchanged that truth about God for a lie. And what was the lie? That the creation, that the created things deserved my worship, deserved my life, deserved my investment, deserved my devotion, my commitment. Terrible exchange, right? And so he says here, and we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What is the everlasting covenant? I believe that this is the everlasting covenant. Because the covenant of Abraham was not necessarily an everlasting covenant. The covenant of Noah was not an everlasting covenant. I believe what we're looking at here is the fact that this covers all creation, all mankind. And he says here that because we exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation, that is the reason the wrath of God is revealed and we see it now. Y'all tracking with me? All right. So, go with me to the next part. Verse 7 through 11. Notice in Isaiah 24 it says, The wine mourns. Wine used to cheer, right? That's the reason why the Psalms tells us, that, or Proverbs maybe tells us that God gave wine to cheer the heart of man. Wine's not necessarily a bad thing. Now do we in our sinfulness turn it into a bad thing? You better believe it. But wine in and of itself is not bad. It's supposed to cheer the heart, but instead the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. Not only that, but the myth of the tambourines is stilled. You know why? Because we've got nothing to sing about anymore in this city. We've got nothing to drink about, nothing to cheer about anymore. We've got nothing to sing about. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. There's nothing to, to shout about. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. There's no music to be played. Nothing to, to play music for. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. And so in verses 7 through 11, what you see is this, and you can read them for yourself, but in this city, the earthly city, life was all about fleshly satisfaction. Life was about cheerfulness from the wine. Life was about joy in the world and playing to music. Instead of worshiping and serving and using it all for the Creator, we used it for our own fleshly gratifications. Y'all know that. You see it evident in your own life, or you have, right? And so we see that in this city, life was all about fleshly satisfaction. But in judgment, it will be gone. And notice he says that it is a wasted city in verse 10. The wasted city is broken down. It was all a waste. It was all for nothing. And every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. And notice what he says in verse 11. All joy has grown dark. That's important. Because if you're putting your investment in this worldly city, if you're putting your investment in your fleshly satisfaction, if God only gets the leftovers... If you are not investing in His kingdom in some way, I'm telling you right now, you're investing in a wasted city. You're investing in a broken down system. You're investing in a place that has no hope. There is nothing that you are going to gain from investing in this city. And all joy is going to grow dark one day. There's going to be nothing to cheer you. There's going to be nothing to sing about. 
Nothing to be happy about. All joy has grown dark. See, in this life, you get a mix. You get the wrath of God revealed, and you see it all around you. You get the grace of God revealed. You get both. Some of you have experienced both of them in your life here recently, right? You've seen both the judgment of God on sin and how it affects the world and how it affects you. And you've seen the grace of God and how it blesses you and how it affects you. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 that God gives us a glimpse of His wrath and then He gives us a glimpse of His grace because He woos us with His grace and He woes us with His wrath. And so, ultimately, He wants you to look at the result of sin, but He also wants you to look at His grace and His mercy. And so when we look at the blessings in this life, we're supposed to be able to see any joy that you have. I, I say this a lot, but some of you have never heard it. If you've heard it many times, just get used to it. You're going to hear it more. I want each and every one of you for just a minute to take a moment. Try your best to think about the most joyful moment that you can think of in your life. The moment that you thought to yourself, this is heaven on earth. The moment you thought, if I could live forever in this moment, I would live forever here. And that is still just a glimpse of what joy we will experience when we're not in a mix of wrath and grace, but we're in the fullness of God's glory, of nothing but His grace, of nothing but His blessing, right? Now I want you to take for just a moment and I want you to imagine the moment in your life that is the worst moment that literally was hell on earth. The moment that you thought, I don't even know if I want to live anymore. Come on, anybody ever been there? I want you to take the moment that is the worst to where there was no glimpse of light, to where there was no joy whatsoever, and I want you to understand this. It is still only a glimpse of what it will be like when there is no more grace from God at all. Because at least right now you get both. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you invest everything into the earthly city, you need to understand that one day all the joy is going to grow completely dark and there will be nothing to joy about. But if you invest in the godly city, there will be one day that there will be nothing to sorrow about. There will be nothing except joy in the city because in God's city, wrath is completely absent. There is none. In the worldly city, there is nothing except wrath and the grace of God is completely absent. Right now, you get them both. And so God lets you look at the earthly city and He says, here's what the end result is. Do you want to invest in it? And then He looks and He shows you a glimpse of the godly city and He says, here's what it looks like. Which one do you want to invest in? When it comes to your time to move into your eternal city, which city do you want to live in? Do you want to live in the one where there is no joy? 
where there is all grown dark and there is nothing except the wrath of God from here on out throughout all eternity, where the wrath of God is never finished, where the worm never dies, the thirst never quenched, and the fire never quits burning, the body dies, but it never dies? Or do you want to go to the city to where there is nothing but the grace of God and nothing except life after life after life after life and joy after joy after joy after joy? And that's what we see in both of these here. I should have just broke this up into three or four sermons, shouldn't I? Go with me now to uh, chapter 26. i got to skip over some stuff. All right, no, I can't. Man, I can't. All right, cha- uh, chapter 24, verse 13. Look what happens. In this city, even though it comes to ruins, look what God does. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Look with me, if you would, for a minute at Isaiah chapter 17, verse 6. Isaiah 17, verse 6, look what he says here. He says, Gleaning will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree. Here's what he's saying. When an olive tree was beaten, not all of the olives fell out. There were some olives that were left. When the the grapes are harvested, Not every grape is picked, but there's some left for gleaning. What is God trying to say? In the midst of all of this judgment that we experience right now, even though the olive tree is being beaten, there's some left. There's some that are still saved. The judgment is here, but it's not all going to be condemned and damned. There are going to be a remnant that is saved. You and I are part of that remnant if we have our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now go over with me to um, uh, chapter 26, verse 1 and 2. I'll go through these last ones very quickly. I want to look at the city of God, the strong city of God, because here's what we see in it. In verse uh, 1 through 2, notice he says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Judah, we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Ultimately, he says, what protects us in this city is our salvation. God has forgiven us of all of our sin. There is nothing that can hold us accountable any longer. There is nothing that we can be condemned. If God forgives us, what charge can be brought against us? None. God is the one that is forgiven. Christ is the one that has died and paid for it. And so salvation is our protection. And then look at verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so one of the things that we see is that the inhabitants of this city are the people that their minds were stayed on Him in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this trial. Our minds were stayed on Him and we kept our focus on Him and His promises and we trusted Him through it. Because look at verse 4 in chapter 26. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. We keep our minds stayed on Him. Listen, right now, again, when you're experiencing the judgment of God in the world, when you're experiencing both uh, the judgment and the grace of God in the world, what do we do? How do we respond to that? We keep our minds focused on Him and His promises. We keep our minds focused on the fact that He has already told us 
that one day, when this judgment is over, I'm going to bring you to a strong city. Notice what he said in... Um, I'd have to find this verse real quick. And I don't think I have time. Yeah, yeah, chapter 26, verse 20. Look at what he told them. Because he's talking to them about the judgment that's coming through. And look what he told them. He said, come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, and hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has what? Until it's passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Ultimately, here's what God closed it out saying to them. My judgment is coming through. And so what do you need to do as it comes through? Just lay low. <laughs> Just lay low. Keep your eyes focused on Him. Keep your eyes focused on His promises. Keep your eyes focused on what this city is going to be. And I'm not going to take you through there. I'm going to wait and save that for the next sermon whenever I get back two weeks from now. But I want you to understand this. The judgment of God is going to come through. And it is going to affect us all in some way or another. Alright? But He promises... The ones that will keep their eyes fixed on Him. The ones that will trust in Him forever and ever. He will keep you in perfect peace. Perfect peace. Why? Because you know that His fury is just passing by. And you know that once it has passed by, and once it is time for you to go to your eternal state, you get to go to a strong city. A city whose walls are salvation. A city who there will be no harm, there will be no destruction that will ever enter in. A city that there is nothing but joy in this place. There is no wrath, there is no sorrow, there is no sickness, there is no death. What I'm reading to you from is probably where Paul got the majority of the sermons that he preached that you get in your New Testament today. All he was doing was expositing these scriptures right here when he talked to you about death is swallowed up in victory in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so what we see in these chapters is that you have two choices. You either invest your life in the city of the world. And if you do that, you may have some temporary joy from the wine and some temporary joy. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to have a glass of wine. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if where you find your joy in life is just fulfilling fleshly satisfaction, if you just live for you and all that you want to do, and you worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, I want, you to, tell you, I want to tell you something. There's coming a day when every bit of that temporary joy is going to grow dark and there will be none. None. But the promise of God is this. If you will invest into the godly city, if you will put your faith and your trust in Him, then that investment will be an investment into a strong city that will never collapse, that will never experience harm, that will never experience sorrow, that will never experience sickness, pain, death, none of the things that the curse and the wrath of God brings on this world 
we have two choices. And my question to you this morning is which city do you want to live in? And which city are you investing in right now? When you look at your life and you look at the way you live and what you live for and the worship that you give and the things that you put your heart and your soul into, are you investing in the earthly city or are you investing in God's city? That's the question I believe that we have to ask when we look at God's judgment on the nations.